Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Energy Management Podcast. This is the podcast for energy managers, sustainability leaders, and facility operators to share their stories of success out in the field. My name is Simran, and I am the producer and co-host of this show. And joining me today is my fellow co-host, Andrew Blavelt. Hello, everyone. Andrew Blavelt. Uh, I run sales here at uh, the Building West Product Group. I've got a background in energy management, energy engineering, and I'm looking forward to speak with our friends and partners at Weaver State. Likewise, and like Andrew said, our guests today are uh, Jacob Kane and Justin Owen from Weber State University. Jacob is the Director of Operations and oversees all facility aspects on the campus. And for those of you who have been listening to us since the beginning, you might actually remember Justin. He was the first guest on our podcast. Um, Jacob works with Justin in the facilities department, and he oversees the campus's energy programs. Justin, want to welcome you back to the show. And Jacob, we're so excited to have you join us as well. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Jacob, I kind of want to start with you. So, you know, I know that Weber State has done a lot of great things in terms of energy management and sustainability. Um, Going back to 2007, I know that Weber State signed on to the American College and University President's Climate Commitment. And then when we when Weber State signed on, the university committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2050. Going back to that time, you know, what was a turning point during that commitment that you made to become carbon neutral by 2050? And you realized all of the programs that you were probably going to run to get to that point um, where you realized, like, maybe you need something more in terms of an EMIS or how to track the initiatives for your projects and, and get more visibility to stakeholders. That's a really good question. We started out as our president, who at the time was Ann Milner, uh, made a commitment to have the university become carbon neutral by 2050. That decision um, was actually a little bit in the dark. Um, We had started the the climate around the university had started to increase in terms of moving towards energy and sustainability goals and becoming carbon neutral. And there was a little bit of a climate nationally, you know, that some universities were making that commitment. And our president just kind of made a a very bold decision to commit us to do that with really not any direction or um, guidance on how to get there. So just kind of committing the university saying, hey, we're going to take a really serious attempt at making this happen. Um, Later, they identified that we needed to have someone really drive that boat and and make that happen. And they started by having an energy manager position posted, um, which uh, I got back in 2008. And we started heading down that road of doing work on energy and sustainability. And our first real effort was involved in looking at an ESCO. We were looking at performance contracting, Um, a fairly typical vehicle uh, for making significant strides on energy and sustainability at large organizations. We dug into that. Uh, We were fairly far along in the process. We'd done an investment grade audit. But after looking at all the details and some of the additional overhead costs associated with running an ESCO, we decided that we could do a, a better job ourselves by having our own project managers, our own staff do a lot of the energy and sustainability projects. Uh, And so that was probably, I'd say the first key turning point was that decision to bring a lot of this in-house and really become invested in that 
process and all those projects ourselves. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that, Jacob, because a lot of times when we work with new clients or or we're you know we're we're, we're having an initial conversations, uh, we find that you know those decisions are made at the, at the highest levels of you know we're going to a certain amount of you know reduction in energy usage or greenhouse gases or you know carbon neutrality, and the 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 actual roadmap on how to get there has not been announced yet. So you have these goals of you know ten years from now we're carbon neutral, and then they're like oh you know, wait, how do we actually do this? And then you've got to do all that planning and research and development. And that's where, you know, a lot of the journey starts uh, for for our, you know, customers, for our partners. And it, it's really cool to watch that um, that kind of, you know, roll out across a, a number of, of different universities, uh, organizations across the country. Uh, just in terms of, of how you guys have gotten there, how you guys have, have made these giant steps, uh, what are some of the projects that you've done to make the most impact towards these goals? So very similar to many organizations, we started out with the uh, so-called low-hanging fruit. Um, We declined not to go with the ESCO. We started bringing the projects in-house and started looking at, you know, the lighting projects, some controls projects, um, some of those typical things. We did have some really cool uh, financing projects. uh, kind of creativity that we did in order to kind of create a revolving loan fund to kind of get the project from a financial perspective going. But as we started going into it, you know, and, and uh, on my own part, as I did a lot of research looking at other organizations, institutions, kind of looking for role models, I kind of, for me, I noticed a big problem, so to speak, in that the projects that were being done were really good at getting you that first 20, 30%, you know, of carbon reduction, but it didn't address the big, you know, kind of elephant in the room, so to speak, in that, how do you get from 70% of your carbon reduction down to zero? Um, I use, you know, a home as a good example, you know, for a lot of people, you have a furnace, you know, people can go in your home and you can buy energy efficient equipment, you can upgrade to a high efficiency air conditioner and that kind of stuff. But what do you do about your big carbon sources, you know, which in most cases is your your furnace and your water heater? What do you do about it? And I kind of compared that to a university. We were in that same boat. How do we really become carbon neutral? And we kind of have to stop burning fossil fuels. And so that train of thought really started us down the road um, in how we would manage this and, and really make some unique strides. Uh, so with that, we started eliminating steam on campus. Most, lots of universities, particularly ones with a, uh, a lot of uh, large heating season, require a lot of heat. That removing steam was unique, uh, and so we started decommissioning parts of our steam plant and our steam system, and converting those systems over to uh, alternative sources: uh, ground source coupled uh, heat pumps or heat recovery chillers, VRF things like that. And that really has been a very unique thing that's happening at Weber State and something that is uh, really kind of, I think, set us apart in, in our efforts and strides towards carbon neutrality. Jacob, you mentioned an interesting point about low-hanging fruit. You know, when I think about when a university or any organization, you know, starts out with a very ambitious goal to becoming carbon neutral, uh, to Andrew's point, you know, you start off with that goal, you have the end result in mind, but the 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 steps to get there are kind of sometimes pretty vague. Um, 
And I love that you said that you were looking at role models, you know, outside of Weber State to kind of figure out what others were doing. Um, did you hear anyone or did you see any universities that kind of had tackled the the low hanging fruit problem? And what were they doing that was unique that you decided to implement? So I had um, looked at a number of other organizations and they did have good examples of tackling that low hanging fruit. There was a lot of good examples out there for getting the lighting projects and some of these controls upgrades and a lot of that type of stuff moving along. So I did look at other organizations, institutions, and I, and I, I would say most of them, their energy programs and sustainability programs were doing a reasonable job at kind of taking off that first 10 to 20%, looking at really good ROIs, you know, ROIs in that three, five, seven, 10 year range, um, which are really good to start with because they kind of, um, from a finance standpoint, kind of kickstart, you know, the energy program, get, you know, a revolving loan moving, kind of create that, that financial, um, machine that keeps your energy program moving. Uh, so yeah, I, I saw a lot of examples out there and, and I would say most organizations, institutions that had, had started moving in that direction were attacking the low hanging fruit reasonably well. Well, I definitely commend you for taking on the supply side and not just purchasing renewable energy credits. That's a pretty incredible feat. And I don't see many uh, universities or, you know, corporations going that far down that path. Uh, on, on the on the demand side, you know, we see a lot of measures installed. You know, we're, you know, frankly, part of a big lighting company. We know a lot about that as well. Um, but when it comes to persistence, I know, you know, you look at, you know, retro commissioning, you look at sequence of operations changes, anything involving a building automation system. How are you guys managing persistence to, to make sure that, you know, the efforts you're making on, on the supply side are matched up with those demand side efforts as well? So this is one of the, the places where these kind of mechanical systems get really interesting, at least from the, the energy geek point of view. Um, what you do when you install a heat pump or a VRF system is you separate um, your heating and cooling from your ventilation. So now we have one system that uses refrigerant to move energy within a building instead of moving that energy with air, right? And the kind of conventional wisdom is, you know, if you need 10 CFM in your building as an arbitrary unit, you're going to need 10 times that amount to cool um, that space, which means your fan is going to have to be that much bigger. What we've seen, and, and with regards to persistence, is as we're doing these retrofits, and our library is a great example, um, we decrease our maximum fan energy by up to 90%. So in, in our library in particular, there were two mechanical rooms with two air handler systems, traditional, you know, steam, chilled water, four pipe, um, over 200 horsepower of supply, relief, return, and exhaust fans. We downsized that to a 20 horsepower ERV. Um, and, and so when you're talking about managing the ongoing implications of those energy si si systems, very similar to what happens with LEDs, most of your bang for your buck is in that efficiency argument. And the control sequences become much, much simpler. I'm not so much concerned about the operation of the building in terms of demand response as I am downsizing those mechanical systems. So even if I do make a mistake and, you know, and I run a building when people aren't in there, the, the, the energy implications of that are much smaller. And that's one of the big advantages kind of off, 
Sorry, I'm going to start that over. That's one of the big advantages of these VRF systems is they downsize that fan energy. The other one is that we have turned our campus into this giant energy sharing network. Okay, so every VRF unit, every terminal fan coil in our systems has its own thermostat. The occupants are determining that. And that's somewhere we where we kind of depart from traditional wisdom in energy management. We let our occupants determine their own set points. And so what that means is there's a lot of diversity in terms of heating and cooling load throughout a building, right? You might have someone who has a preference toward warmer temperatures, colder temperatures, north side of the building, south side of the building. One room has windows, one room doesn't. In a traditional VAV system, that's kind of a nightmare. Uh, you try and brute force it as best you can, uh, but the reality is there's a lot of wasted energy in trying to satisfy uh, those energy uh, preferences. With VRF, what ends up happening is the branch controllers do all the work. So if there's a little bit of heating needed on one side of the building, a little of cooling needed on another side, that balances and the central campus loop doesn't even see it. And so as we've turned our campus into this giant energy sharing network, all of our, all of our buildings are connected to our campus chilled water loop, which is another place where we're a little unique um, in that we're, ex we're utilizing an existing chilled water loop as the heat rejection and heat source for all of our heat pumps. So if I have one building that's heating and one building that's cooling, they'll share energy before I see anything at the plant side. I think I answered the question. Sorry, I kind of went off on a, on a ramble there, but, but that's the, the advantage of these, these heat pump systems is uh, once you get them commissioned and charged and working properly, they're very hands-off from a management point of view. Yeah, and I've worked with a number of them, but mostly on a, a much smaller scale. So it's, it's, it's really interesting for me to see uh, you know, that deployed at such a large scale and to hear the, the feedback of, you know, you know, it's not not the amount of maintenance you'd you know, you'd expect, or you know, really the fact that they are self sustaining in a way that you know you can you know be managed easily for for that large of a deployment. So that's that's a really positive and great feedback for other people looking to do that that scaled rollout of a VRF more you know heat pump based system. So uh, congrats. So the the one thing that I might add to that particular discussion is the other thing that moving to this kind of system does is allows you to get away from your large mechanical heating and cooling systems, right? So in the past, we've relied on steam. Obviously, there's a lot of upkeep with that. There's a lot of maintenance. Um, there's some risk. Steam isn't the safest thing around. Now, it's, it's manageable, obviously. Um, but what, what ends up happening, for example, on the cooling side, is instead of a, a chiller that's, let's say, you know, pulse 1500 kW or however it, however big it is, we utilize these ground source fields as our end source of energy. So instead of that large campus demand that I would normally see, I just have two small pumps that turn the field over. So when you're, when you're talking about the energy implications of this kind of system, it really, you know, we design at the building, but we think at the campus level, because every time we take a building off steam, um, we see a lot of energy savings, not just at the building, you know, on the submeters, but also on the plant side. I was just going to say, uh, yeah, steam traps are just a nightmare. And, and you know, you think about, you know, I know there's a lot of, you know, a lot of conversations around maintenance and BRS, but if you just, you know, anyone who's tried to manage a campus, even a, you know, 
uh, a building wide, you know, of, of steam traps, it is night and day. And when you have a DDC feedback loop with, you know, fault detection to be able to tell you if you're having issues, um, again, you know, reducing the, the large equipment, all that stuff just, you know, really equals a, a much easier, you know, easier to manage, easier to, to measure and, and, you know, be predictive with, uh, with uh, infrastructure. Kind of wanted to segue to something that both, you know, Jacob and Justin, you have iterated, which is some of the things that you're doing at Weber State are kind of unique and, you know, you maybe haven't seen it before. Um, we've talked to both of you extensively about some of the projects that you're doing. And a lot of the times the elephant in the room, I think it always comes down to money, right? So Jacob, you kind of alluded to the finance model that you started at the campus to kind of get one buy-in from stakeholders on getting these projects up and running. Um, but also you'd kind of turned around that investment and applied it to an EMIS. So I think I would love for you to tell the listeners more about, you know, how did you get this idea? How was it valuable to get stakeholder buy-in? And then, you know, what was the the role that EMIS played in this? Um, when we started heading down the road for reinvesting the energy savings, one of our big strategy was to kind of share the pie, so to speak, like, hey, if we're going to get energy savings out of this, you know, we want the administration of, you know, the university to feel that benefit as well. So our original proposal was actually to take 75% of the energy savings, reinvest it, and give 25% back to the administration to use on other needs, um, just to keep them interested and invested in what we were trying to do. Uh, as we decided not to go with the performance contract down you know, the ESCO path, we started exploring options as far as, you know, different, you know, municipal loans, bonds, any type of financial vehicle we could use. Uh, we even looked at our own endowment. What we ended up deciding to do is, is large organizations have kind of their cash management pool that usually accountants are quickly putting into, you know, rapid turnaround money market accounts. They usually have a very low interest yield. And due to the nature of our energy program, we decided to take hey, some of this cash management pool of cash and use it to uh, finance our energy program, kind of give us a line of credit from that cash management pool. And we decided on a 3% interest rate. And this was done back in 2009-ish when we were having that discussion. At that time, uh, after the recession, uh, interest rates were pretty dang low and we were, we were viewed as a really good uh, benefit. So we did kind of our first uh, little bit of energy savings, keeping, once again, the financial piece, those stakeholders invested in, and seeing value in it. And we brought back the, the energy savings. And the administration was so happy with the savings and with the interest rate return, they actually said, hey, you know what? You guys go ahead and keep 100% uh, of the savings. As we developed this program, however, there were two things that the, the university made us do. Uh, one, they said, you have to document the savings. And then another big critical piece that is a little bit contrary to conventional wisdom in the energy world is that the savings have to be what our administration called real savings. Meaning at the end of the day, if you say you're going to save $500,000, when they go check that utility account at the end of the year, there better be $500,000 sitting in that utility account. 
Um, and a lot of uh, energy projects and programs work on estimates and projections. And if the weather is bad or, or the function of the building changes, you can see energy managers, sustainability managers getting into this argument with their administration saying, well, I projected 500,000 savings. We went and looked, there's only 200,000 sitting in the account. Why is it wrong? Well, we didn't normalize the weather data properly or something like that, which for an administrator or an accountant just seems like a lame excuse right? That you messed up or you overestimated the savings and they just, you lose trust really fast with your administration that way. So for us, uh, coming up with a system of making sure we documented those savings and could prove that they were real savings. Um, we built a couple of, of things internally. We have, you know, some big spreadsheets we use, but we also use an energy management, you know, information system to really get in there and help us identify one good projects, but also help with that documentation, right? And understanding where things were going so that when we made statements or estimates about estimated savings or projections on energy savings, we were much more confident that those savings would be real. Um, and we've been very, very aggressive about how we manage that because it's such a strict requirement for us that those savings are real. And so far in, in 11 years, we've, we've hit the target every time. I think the most we've ever been off on our projected energy savings and the actual energy savings utility account has only been a cut one or 2%. So it's, it's a big deal to make sure that those savings are real. Because I've seen a lot of energy programs die within the first year or two on this particular issue that the energy savings that were projected do not match the remaining balance in the utility account which any administration is going to lose faith in that program very quickly. Right, right. Definitely, for sure. And and what about the role that the, the team or the administration team played in picking the projects? I know that Justin has mentioned some projects that he's done in the last few years, but did you find that as you started to prove the ROI that you were actually documenting and saving what you said you would, was the administration more willing to kind of do bigger and more adventurous projects, if you will, or, or, you know, how did that progress? Yeah, absolutely. There was incremental trust that was built over time. In the first few years, we were reporting on our energy program frequently. Every couple months, we had to sit down with the vice president and explain where we were at, how the program was doing. Every project had to be very carefully justified, have, you know, really tight ROIs. As we started becoming better and we were more accurate, then we had a few years under our belt of, hey, look, we estimated this kind of savings. And yep, that's exactly what was left in the utility account. And that trust built and increased incrementally with the administration. We were given a lot more latitude. Uh, the first few projects the administration did help pick. Uh, now we have 20 or 30 projects we're looking at or 15 or 20 projects we look at the administration might have an opinion on one or two of them but the vast majority 90 percent we get to pick the projects and there's a lot of trust there you know i've had my boss a couple times say you know we could come in and propose something pretty crazy at this point and we and he thinks president's council and everyone would just gladly go along with us because our trust is high enough at this point that they're willing to, to take those kind of risks with us. Right. Justin, turning over to you, you know, if you guys have about 30 projects up in the air, you know, how did you, like this was started, I think, before you were at Weber State, you know, now that you've been there a few years and, and Jacob has kind of really set up the foundation for this revolving fund and the projects and getting ROI and trust with the administration team, how have you kind of leveraged it and taken the programs that you're running to the next level? That's an interesting question. 
Part of it has to do with, you know, buy-in from our administration, from our campus planning and construction team as they're managing projects, particularly capital capital development projects. Uh, are, are they implementing um, the suggestions that we give in the design review process? Um, it's, it's been pretty interesting as this has moved forward. Now, I started at Weber State in an, a student hourly role probably 2010. Um, and so I, I have been learning from Jake for a long time. And I remember in, 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 in particular one conversation we had when I was a student hourly employee where he showed me the model of what he was thinking for campus. This was, you know, about 10 years ago. And one of the questions we get asked frequently, or not so much anymore as, as we've done this over the past couple of years, but one of the questions I got a lot in, say, five years ago was, why aren't you doing more solar on campus? And that came down to an economic question, particularly being a, a public campus. We can't leverage the ITC and the PTC, um, you know, the, the tax credits that are available for, for private firms on solar. And so the economics for solar weren't quite as great. Um, I remember this conversation that Jake and I had. This was 10 years ago. And he said, oh, in about 10 years, you'll start seeing a lot more campus or I'm sorry, I'm going to do that one again. So I had this conversation with Jake about 10 years ago. And he said, in about 10 years, I think we'll start seeing a lot more solar on campus. And lo and behold, in the past few years, as I've been an energy manager, we've done two and a half megawatts of solar. And so that's, that's one of the things that's been really interesting to me, and frankly, to see Jake's vision come to light. As we've made these mechanical, uh, as we've made these mechanical projects, we've done these lighting projects, we've built the revenue streams, it's allowed us to digest some of these larger projects. Um, in particular, we just did a, a 550 kilowatt solar covered parking array um, that has been very well received by the campus. And we're planning on, on doing that again. So in terms of, you know, big shakeups to the program, most of my job has just been keep the success that Jake built going, learn how it works, learn where it violates conventional wisdom, and then kind of make these incremental changes on improvements as I can. That's really great. Um, switching gears to something that, Justin, you mentioned a few weeks ago on the ACI webinar. Um, and I, I think I've told you this, Justin, we had a lot of feedback from participants, um, attendees of the webinar about what you were doing on your building EUI levels. Um, people were really impressed, frankly. Um, can you walk us through a little bit more, you know, what's going on there? How did you get those levels? What have you done since then? Anything that you want to share about that? Yeah. Um... Let me gather my thoughts for a moment here. Uh, I, I'm thinking in particular of our most efficient building, which is Linquist Hall. I believe it's about 120,000 square feet. Is that right, Jake? Is it bigger? It might be bigger. 120,000 is accurate. Yeah. Okay. So Linquist Hall is our social science building. It has a couple laboratories, but for the most part, it's a traditional um, classroom building. And the reason that, sorry, my Brain's going faster than my mouth. Let me regroup here. <laughs> so the reason we're able to drive those EUIs down so low comes down to a few different factors. One I've already mentioned, which is the, that fan question, right? Um, the, the district energy, the energy sharing, but another portion of it is this ground source component, right? If, if you think about where your energy's coming from with the ground source field, it doesn't take a lot of purchased energy to unleash those BTUs, right? So I just have a couple of five horsepower pumps that operate the ground source field for that building in particular. 
And that's replacing things that are much more energy intensive, like chillers and boilers. So when, when I say that building's EUI is 25, uh, that's the site EUI. It's the electrical demand for the building. It's 100% electric building, first of all. Um, so we're able to meter that all very closely. And then it gets all of its district energy from the deep earth, which is a really interesting thing to me. Um, now, there's a lot more that goes into it. Um, we're, we're pretty particular in the design process. For example, as I'm reviewing, let's say, a refrigerant piping layout for a new building, one of the things I check for is that there's going to be diversity of load among the different VRF zones, right? Because I want all of that energy sharing to be done by the very low energy systems in the building instead of going to the district, to the ground source, if at all possible. Um, Lighting's also a portion of it. Uh, so we have very strict lighting standards on campus. We're 100% LED. Um, we, we do, uh, we, we use Wattstopper DLM. So vacancy sensors, um, no uplighting, that kind of thing. And, and frankly, sometimes there's some uncomfortable conversations early on um, with architects, particularly as they get used to what we're doing. Um, but as we have continued to work with a, a couple of firms in particular, they've kind of gotten on board with what we're trying to do. Now, the other interesting thing about this building in particular is that solar covered parking that I just mentioned is right next door to this building. So it was designed with the intent to fully offset that building's energy use on site. And so it's, it's in effect, now I haven't measured anything yet because the solar's only been online for about a month and a half, so I don't have enough data. But in effect, it is our first net zero building. I just have a question uh, generally, because I know that, you know, uh, your your conversion, your electrification, your conversion to VRF away from, you know, your traditional airflow, um, uh, you know, central air and, uh, you know, more plant-based uh, uh, mechanical systems. Do you have an idea of roughly per square foot what that conversion costs for our, our customers? I know I've had you know, a lot of people ask me about it and, and it's, it's been, you know, a, a, a big conversation around, you know, kind of taking the old way of, you know, convection, airflow and, you know, central plant and, you know, a lot of mechanical pieces to more localized control that is, you know, like you said, you know, balancing heat loads between spaces specifically to you know, gain those efficiencies. Um, do you have a, a rough estimate of, of what it's kind of taken to get to that point? I do. So with VRF and energy systems, particularly mechanical systems, um, we talked a little bit earlier about those low-hanging fruit, those early return ROIs. Changing out your lighting systems in a building can be driven by the energy program. You could have an energy program can afford, whether it's time to replace the lights or not, you can go ahead and pay for the replacement of lights, put in new high efficiency lighting, and the return is good enough that it can pay for itself. Energy costs um, and the cost of installing a new mechanical system, you're not going to get there. An energy program can't afford to replace the mechanical system in a building. It can augment it. It can support it. So this is a time and, and for me as i've served in the director of operations role as helped out i'm now in charge of the capital budget for replacing systems as they wear out so it allows me the opportunity to synergize our capital improvement dollars along with our energy program dollars to 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 hit this kind of sweet spot of both 
So with that, um, a lot of this has to do with timing. Uh, our energy, our sustainability goal is to be carbon neutral by 2050. Right now, we're on track to be done about 2040. The big driver on that is the mechanical systems in the building. The energy program can't afford to pay for all that. So what we're having to do is time it that as buildings become due for mechanical replacements, rather than going in and replacing coils, fans, heat exchangers, all the typical stuff, we kind of combine all that into one giant conglomerate of funds to go in and rip out the entire old mechanical system and come back and put an entirely new one in. A traditional four-pipe system, chiller, boilers, chilled water pipe, VAV boxes, all that stuff, costs about 40 to $45 a square foot um, for us in Utah. There might be some variations. I know in the, uh, the Bay Area, that's going to be quite a bit more money, right? But it depends on where, what your local costs are. But about $45 a square foot for a traditional four-pipe mechanical system. For these newest new systems, um, in the last 10 years, we've seen some variation in cost. The lowest we ever saw was about $20 a square foot. So actually quite a bit less than a four pipe system. And we've seen it as high as about $35 a square foot, maybe 35 to 40. So from a cost perspective, in terms of replacing the mechanical system, if I was to rip out a system and come back and put in boilers, chillers, and everything that goes with them, I might be $40 a square foot. I could also replace it with this new high efficiency system at the same or probably less cost than that original system. That being said, contractors, these are new systems. Sometimes they get a little scared about them. You have to work with them, and there's a little bit more management involved to make sure it happens. But from our perspective, in most cases, we're actually putting in replacement mechanical systems at a lower cost than if we had replaced them with the traditional systems. And that's incredible. That's, that's great to hear. And you know, I'm assuming that you guys have a pretty good commissioning process at this point, given that you guys are probably the leader in, in, in VRF, especially locally, um, that, that you, you have a, a great process to go through and, and make sure that those are installed right, and, you know, commissioned, and then, you know, ongoing, you, you, uh, you probably have a great process to, to, to ensure that they stick to those efficiencies and, and really stay within those thresholds um, to hit your, your goals. So great work. So this is a great time for me to make a comment about VRF or heat pump systems in general compared to uh, traditional boilers and chillers. Um, comparatively speaking, I describe uh, boiler and chiller systems as a sledgehammer. They have a lot of power and intensity. And one of the nice things about them is during the design of a building, if there's errors or or problems in design or as people are installing things it doesn't quite line up you know a VAV box is not sized properly things like this boilers and chillers you being that sledgehammer being that brute force they can kind of beat the building into submission and finally get it to kind of heat and cool semi-close to what you were expecting regardless of good commissioning or not just because they, they have that brute force to them these high efficiency systems like VRF and heat pump systems don't have that that sledgehammer they're not able to beat a building to where it needs to be which means you have to get it to run right and so as people have come and talked to us about hey we're considering doing what you're doing with vrf what do you do and one of the big things i tell them i say these systems are great and even from a maintenance perspective they've been really good we've had a couple buildings that we haven't had a call on the heating and cooling system in years the challenge is, is during the design and installation process, 
we had to be far more involved. Our commissioning process just had to be absolutely top notch, particularly on the refrigerant system. You need to make sure that refrigerant system is bulletproof. Uh, we do aggressive pressure testing with nitrogen. We do very detailed triple evac systems on the re on the refrigerant or e triple evac uh, uh, vacuum testing, just to make sure that that system can handle refrigerant and handle it for 30 years without having the issues. And so I warn people that so you've got to be really invested in the commissioning process. And so one of the things we, we did at our institution is we hired an internal commissioning agent. We'd actually don't hire for the mechanical system, a third party commissioning agent. Uh, it's actually a full-time staff that reports to me and, and they manage commissioning for our construction projects. Cause I, I want everything done to our standard for commissioning. Cause it's so critical to these systems. Whereas a, a traditional four pipe system, you can be a little more lax. You can kind of let it go a little more and the building can kind of, like I said, brute force it into to place. These systems, they either work efficiently or they don't work at all. So kind of closing in on something that I, you know, we haven't touched on thus far in, in the podcast yet is, is COVID. So I know that Justin mentioned, you know, how the, the pandemic has impacted the university and the webinar he did a few weeks ago. And I think it's been about two months almost since school started. Um, you know, what is a, how are things going on the campus so far? You know, I'm sure with the ASHRAE guidelines and less people on campus, things have changed, but, you know, do either of you have any, you know, new updates on how that's going for you? I think I can share a couple things. It's not too different, I would think, from most organizations. Uh, we have very regular conversations about the, you know, impacts of COVID. We have a task force designed to work through things. We deal with the pressure of, of organizations and events wanting to meet more often, but also deal with the concerns and risks of COVID. So I wouldn't say anything too unusual. Obviously, when, when COVID first hit, we had a lot of conversations about ventilation, right? How do you manage ventilation within a building and how does it impact your energy? So as we separated um, our systems in our building, these mechanical systems, the ventilation from the heating and cooling in particular, as we separated those, it changed how we thought about things. Uh, one of our recent projects about four years ago was our science center. And we were designing that, that project. Uh, it really took the uh, engineers by surprise as we were going through the design process. They designed it like a traditional science lab, you know, with some good energy practice, you know, good energy recovery in it. We had chilled beams and some things like that. And they designed it, you know, traditional supply fan, exhaust fan, the return air system. Um, and I kind of made a, a pretty uh, aggressive demand of the engineers saying, look, I don't want a return air system. I want to provide exactly the amount of fresh air, the right amount of fresh air to the spaces, and we'll cover the exhaust air through the, the uh, ERV. And that really caught them off guard a little bit. And it took a little bit of design work to get them there. And for the last five or six years, that's been an aggressive standard of ours. We don't have return air systems in our, our energy efficient buildings, our old fork pipe buildings traditional have the exhaust return supply you know mixed air chambers all that kind of stuff but our new buildings do not have return air systems so when COVID hit and we started having these conversations um, it was pretty easy for me to meet with the deans across campus as they'd say hey what type of building am I in or you know what are the systems and I said well if you're one of the newer energy system ones you have no return air system the air is going to come, you're going to get fresh air blown into the, that space all the time, and then it's going to go out the exhaust. There is no recycled air going on, at least 
If it is, it's only being recycled locally just within that space. But you're not having a building level recycling of air, which made from if you had a potentially infectious person, you had to do kind of tracing. It made it a much easier process, right? You didn't have to worry about potentially the whole building becoming infected. It was very tight zones, very small spaces. And so for us, that's been a huge benefit in COVID, which made it very easy in terms of how we modified our buildings to meet COVID. The newer systems, we kind of said, we don't really have to do much of anything. The building is designed to provide the right amount of fresh air, and there is no return air system. One quick follow-up on that, Jacob. Uh, what level, you know, from a per- percentage perspective of uh, dedicated outside air are you providing, and is that ducted, you know, to each individual zone? For outside air, um, all of our buildings are 100% outside air. So the, the new buildings, they're like because there's no return air system. Any of the air brought in is is 100% outside air. Now, each space will get, um, and when we go down to each individual space, because one of our things is to have every single space with its own thermostat. So every space gets its own outside air. Uh, we don't even share it with, say you have three offices nearby, you're not going to have each office with its own or sharing air. Each office gets its own set of fresh air coming into it. It might have, as it, as that fan coil in the space is heating and cooling, it will have a little bit of return air within the office, but only that office will get its dedicated fresh air. It's 100% uh, fresh air from outside. Now, the volume of it will be enough to meet ASHRAE standards in terms of, you know, a typical office, you'll get somewhere between 10 to maybe 25 CFM of fresh air um, within the space. Yeah, gotcha. I guess that was that was my question, more around air changes and CFM per person. But So from an air change perspective, it's a VRF system because it's providing just the fresh air. Uh, your air change rate is going to be a little, I mean, you're in that one to two air changes per hour range um, because there's no return air system. You know, within a typical return air system, you know, a VAV building, you're going to have much higher. You're going to have four to six air changes per hour, but traditionally, 70 to 80 percent of that air is is recycled air. Awesome. So we are nearing the end of our time. Um, I wanted to open it up to both of you. Um, Jacob, I'll have you go first on, you know, what did what advice do you have for, you know, other energy managers, facility operators out there on how you how what success have you learned from what you're doing at on the campus now and what can others take moving forward? Uh, the main advice I would offer people uh, is to one, get the trust of your administration. You know, and I'd say for most energy managers, that comes down to the comment I made earlier about making sure your savings are real. Um, I think that's a very important concept and, and it takes a lot of critical thinking to, to figure out how to make that work in, at a given organization. And then I would say the second thing I would mention is is don't be afraid to challenge uh, some of the conventional wisdom about how to do uh, energy and, and mechanical systems at organizations. There, there is some benefit to trying some different things out. That being said, I would say do your homework. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart. If you want to try to challenge conventional wisdom, you better do the research. You better put the time in um, and not make too many assumptions. Cause if you don't put the time in, then it could bite you and then you will lose trust. 
So my first thought on that topic was the the real savings thing, um, understanding your utility bills, who's paying those bills, how they're being funded and so on. But since Jake already said that, <laughs> um, I, I, I would add that nobody's really going to care about your systems the way you do. So whether it's in a recommissioning project or in operational things or does, you know, design and construction of a new building, don't be afraid to have conversations with your contractors um, and push for the things you want. Um, and I will also say that one of the challenges that I come up with, come up against, is too much complexity in control sequences. I see this on lighting, I see this on mechanical systems. And you know, we're not a huge campus, but we're 3 million square feet, right? There, there, there's a number of buildings, a, a lot of devices, and it's very easy to get information overload. So if you can simplify some of those sequences, but still get 95% of the energy benefit, I really think that's the better way to go. You know, a, an example um, on this topic is, is lighting controls. You know, you guys work for a lighting company now. Um, so when you move to LED, you're gonna save 80% of your energy just, just from that switch, right? If you put in a vacancy sensor, you're gonna get another 10 to 15%. That last 5% um, is really hard to get, and I would suggest that your time might be spent better somewhere else. Well, thank you both so much for coming on to the show. Again, Justin, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and Jacob, it's been really great to meet you. Thank you.